So good evening, Sangha. Yeah. Wow, what a week, right? How many of you are the same as you were when you started a week ago? (laughs) (laughs) So the question this evening, one of many, is what will you do with this wise heart you've been cultivating? What are you going to do with it? A lot of times we talk about there's trepidation about leaving the retreat. Because here we've received a download of a lot of information. We've tried on a lot of different tools. You know, this is where we get the download on retreat. And then it's our life where the practice happens. It's our life where the practice happens. It's where we wake up to the teachings in our life, in our relationship field. I love what Seven A said earlier in the week when she talked about the wheel and the road. You know, this, this, the Dharma we've been receiving is like the wheel, but then the road is our life. So we've been talking about belonging here. And another word, question to ask is belonging to what exactly? What exactly do we belong to? And the simplest answer is to a, each other, of course. We belong to each other. Charles Johnson, who's a Buddhist scholar and philosopher and author of this beautiful book called Taming the Ox. He says, one way to understand right conduct is to see it as a calling to us as citizens to translate the Dharma into specific actions of social responsibility. So what I'd like to explore this evening is how do we become socially responsible? especially as it relates to race and racism. That's the area that's been um, a source of um, inquiry and inspiration and need, actually, in our uh, social realm. And to honor that there's many things that all of us are doing in our lives in the society to enrich and enhance There's something about race and racism that still gets us and just creates major contraction. And as Tara was saying, severed belonging. So I want to talk about some of the work I've been doing around this and the frameworks that I think parallel with mindfulness practice, the mindfulness practices that we've been doing. So racism remains one of the most rooted and painful impasses of our time. It's fed through unawareness and the misuse of power. And it's also fed through our inability, our intolerance, our allergic reaction to actually bearing witness to the truth of how it lives in our lives near and far. So the current racial injustice and injury and chaos that we see in our society is a reflection of mind. It's a reflection of consciousness. It's a reflection of blooming seeds that were planted in the past. And that's what we see. That's, that's what we got there for us to look at. And how we respond to these blooms has everything to do with what will bloom in the future. The future being the next minute, the next hour, the next day, the next lifetime. John Wellwood, a Buddhist psychologist back in the 80s, talked about spiritual bypass. And he was speaking specifically to Buddhist communities when he wrote this. 
And this is a little piece of what he says. He said, I coined the term to describe a process I saw happening in the Buddhist community and also in myself. I often use the goal, we often use the goal of awakening to rationalize what I call premature transcendence, trying to rise above the raw and messy side of our humanness before we have fully faced it and made peace with it. I see this as an occupational hazard on the spiritual path. It leads to a conceptual, one-sided spirituality. Ultimate truth in favor of over-relative truth, emptiness in favor over, over form, transcendence over in, um, embodiment and detachment. So I think that's a very important thing to think about when we're in spiritual community. Um, if, if we're still feeling a sense of belonging to something outside of our own distress or our own um, discomfort. <clears throat> so one of the reasons I do this work on Mindful of Race and wrote this book, and I'm going around talking primarily to sanghas about um, the, the severed belonging within meditation communities is, is um, because I was really curious about um, why it's so hard for us, especially given this practice, to be with the, the distress around race and um, our discomfort around that when we have this precious tool. And it's not like it's just in this spiritual community or in spiritual communities. It's, you know, for as long as I can remember, this has been part of the theme song in my life and for many people that I care about and love. And my background is in, um, I was trained as a, in, as a psychotherapist, uh, but my background is in organizational development where I was looking at a lot of systems and dynamics around power and what gets in the way of, of creating cultures that really live and thrive? And what happens when you really diverse, diversify a community? What, do you, what, what does that really mean? It's certainly more than representation, right? It means something. It means that something has to shift. And that was just not really being understood very well. And it's very tied to power. And it's important to really look at how that lives in us. So it made sense to me, especially after I left corporate America in 1992 and started really giving my life over more and more to Buddhist practice, that, well, if the Buddha specialized in suffering and it's in, surely it could, it could shed some light on racial distress and suffering. So it became an inquiry. There's a term for that, and uh, the, a Pali term called samvega that um, is referred to as a spiritual urgency. It's an inner commotion or shock, which, is, which does not allow us to rest content with our habitual adjustments to the world. Instead, it drives us up out of our comfort into unfamiliar jungles to work out with diligence solutions to our existential plight. That's an interpretation of Sambhaga by Bhikkhu Bodhi. A sense of spiritual urgency in my mind to take the practice and drop it right into the heart of my distress. And we've been talking about the different winds of change, you know, like gain and loss and praise and blame. And, and there's some social winds that center and get really um, turbulent when it comes to race and racism. These winds look like corruption and innocence, uh, purity and savagery. It looks like wisdom and irrationality, benevolence and wickedness threats of outsiders and who we consider neighbors, distance and intimacy, and receptivity and force. 
that tug of war in our relational fabric, in our social fabric, in the territory of belonging or what makes belonging difficult. So the question, again, another question becomes, how do we navigate these social winds when anything can happen at any time to any of us around race? And, and when I drop these questions in, it's not meant for us to, to go get an answer to it or to search for an answer. The question becomes the, the uh, apprentice. It becomes what um, supports us in just keeping our minds open to understanding deeper and deeper what this means to us. We actually need a little discomfort in order to wake up, mainly because it gets our attention. And then the question becomes, what do we do next? What do we do when something has our attention? That's when the practice could kind of slip in and these um, teachings we've been receiving this week then has more texture and flavor and fragrance to inquire around this very delicate nerve of race and racism. Because once we're comfortable, we kind of go back to sleep. So I hope to make you a little uncomfortable this evening just to uh, keep you with me. A little history just on me, you know, it's, just, it's, it's interesting how we all come into the practice of being curious about mindfulness. And, and I, was, I was born in South Central Los Angeles in the, in the heat of the civil rights and Black Panther movements. And um, I was in a family of eight. I was number five. And what that means is I never got my piece of the chicken. You know, <laughs> that's what it meant. I grew up with a lot of um, turbulence and, and violence in the community and, and attacks by uh, white people coming into South Central. It's a lot of war and gangs. And, you know, I was made to be tough because if you weren't tough, you'd be a target. And so I was toughened up by my older siblings and taught to fight, but I was never good at it. I was never really good at it. In fact, I don't ever remember winning a fight. (laughs) But um, I sure had a lot of them. I win them now, by the way. I'm just saying. of the earliest memories I have was when I was seven and I witnessed my great-grandmother pacing back and forth in her kitchen, weary as hell, just pacing back and forth, humming, crying, worried about the fact that she couldn't protect all the black bodies of her generations and, 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 and other generations. I remember being seven and watching her. And the biggest potency in that moment was that I couldn't comfort her. I didn't know how to comfort her. The worry was so intense, it didn't look like anything could comfort her. She would be happy to know that I'm doing walking meditation now instead of pacing and worry. And at 15, I had a kid. I was a teenage mom. And at 17, my father was killed. And um, I don't remember um, feeling much at that time. I think something got profoundly shut down in, the, in, in, in his death, in his killing. And then I lived for the next 20 years with an undiagnosed hyperthyroid. So my life was on speed, and I thought that was normal. And on top of that, I was full of rage. I was full of rage without even knowing what it was connected to. I was just mad at the world and on fire with this thyroid. 
And my family didn't believe in going to the doctors because white people would kill you if you went to the doctor because they'd use you as experiments. So you just don't walk into the doctor just because you've got some whatever you think that is. So a lot of um, fear around being supported and distrust. And then I had open heart surgery at 27. Well, the heart had kind of had enough. It was a mitral valve prolapse, but it was also the beginning of opening my heart. In retrospect, that's what it became. So I was a devotee of rage, and I was also very ambitious. I made sure I got jobs that I had a high degree of control in because it was important to me to never be controlled ever again. I was raised in a family of intense control and violence. But whatever I did around controlling really wasn't working. It really wasn't working. And up to this point, my life was just a ball of of confusion. I think there's a song that came out about that years ago. And I was fighting a lot with a broken heart. I didn't have... Of uh, you know the bandwidth to actually fight well. It's kind of like what Thomas Merton writes about the Catholic writer and mystic. He says there is a pervasive form of contemporary violence in which the idealist most easily succumbs: activism and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life are the most common forms of this innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everyone in every way, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace. It destroys our own inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom which makes work fruitful. And there was something about that that really resonated with how I had been navigating the worldly winds around race and racism without even knowing what the the name of it was. And what became very clear to me was that I couldn't do what must be done if I was in a perpetual state of overwhelm. And that's when this practice kicked in, and I kind of stumbled upon this practice. And uh, it really kind of, it was a game changer for me in terms of really getting myself still and turning inward to work with some of this. A lot of therapy and body work worked good too, but (laughs) this practice was really profound. And like many of you, I I would go on retreat to see about finding some balance to rest in between, you know, the horrors in my life and to, to catch my breath and to feel the ground beneath my feet and to learn a better way of relating to the world. That's the ground we share. But the experiences we have on this path are different. And if we're really looking at belonging, then we begin to turn our attention to noticing the subtle ways that harm is done out of ignorance and innocence. And we can begin to bring a sense of tenderness and care to that act. One of the teachings was the teaching um, uh, was a practice of the Bodhisattva, which is common within the tradition, which the, the Zen tradition, Mahayana tradition, leads with, with uh, the teachings of the Bodhisattva. A Bodhisattva is a human being motivated by compassion and committing to awakening the hearts of all sentient beings, without exception. So what they do is they make themselves an example. Uh, they make themselves a refuge for all beings. And so they live in the world 
and walk the world um, through um, the practice of what's referred to as the paramis, and these are principles that guide behavior so that you're not driven by desire or righteousness, right? So the Buddha, before the Buddha became enlightened, he was a bodhisattva in many, many lifetimes. Because, um, you know, the bodhisattva comes and then does the work and then is reborn again and, and there's more work to be done and then you, you, you work on that and, 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 and one of these times you become enlightened. One of these births you become enlightened. I'm not there yet. Um, <laughs> but there's a way that we could say that we're all kind of bodhisattvas in training. We're really looking at how do we, you know, take these teachings to heart? How do we live them without being knocked off center? What are the principles we need to do that well? And, um, and, it's, and that's the practice. It's, it's, and, it's, and the bodhisattva is moving through the territory of life. Not in a cave, not in a monastery, but in life, working on the rubs of life as a form of waking up. So what I'd like to explore around race is why is it, why is matters of race still matters of concern? Why, is, why are matters of race still matters of concern, and what does that have to do with you? What does that have to do with you? So I want to talk a little bit about a framework because core to understanding race and racism is understanding our relationship to suffering and whether we face into it or, or can turn away. And what I've found in this work is even with good intentions, too many of us want the racial distress, the the reality of racial distress to go away without first attending to it, without first looking at it, without first holding it in our awareness. I often refer to this, I often say that racism is a heart disease and it's curable. It's curable with consciousness. It's curable when we turn our attention to it. And heart diseases... um, having had one, is, uh, requires a certain amount of diagnosing, intervention, and recovery. So one framework to understand this in the Buddhist context is to really maybe look at the teachings on the two truth doctrines, which is ultimate and relative, re- relative truth. And ultimate truth, um, it, we're talking about the formless, and relative truth, is where we have the ego and concepts and identities and, and things like that. It's like the oil and water I was talking about yesterday. And relative reality, relative truth, I'm woman, I'm lesbian, I'm, I'm great-grandmother, I'm the writer, and I'm a whole lot of other things people have said I was that I'm really not, but you've got to manage that too. But in ultimate reality, I'm, I'm none of that. I'm none of those things. I'm not in form. It's, we're deeper than that. So in relative reality is where racial ignorance lives. That's where racial injury lives. In ultimate reality, there's no such thing as race. There is no form around that. So what we're really looking at here is, the, is, the, is how we navigate this um, uh, relative, the kinship field, the relational field of our practice. T.S. Eliot says that the eternal is outside of time, yet it is only in time that the fruits of spiritual liberation can manifest. So we need these bodies to wake up to ultimate reality. We need these bodies to wake up to how we are um, causing harm. And we're, we're bypassing that if we think we just need to look at the ultimate reality aspect of this practice and not the relative reality of our relational field, which is where I think a lot of the disconnection comes from. 
Now, in the teachings around these two truths, there are really two expressions of one truth. And, um, you know, so it's not like that's all separate, but it's, it's the way we come to awareness. We can't know ultimate reality without knowing it from this domain. And the bodhisattva functions in relative reality. That's where our separation is. That's where our wounding is. That's where the social winds of harm exist. So a simple framework that I'd like to offer is that um, as racial beings, we're all good individuals. We, we're all good individuals. We all have different, like, temperaments that we came in with. Some of us are, are speak a lot, a little. Some of us are shy and open. And some of us, you know, we just have, we, 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 we're, just, we're just different spacesuits, as Tara says. We all have different family programs around race and racism, whether it was spoken or lived out loud through behavior. We've all experienced traumas at the individual level. We know, we know loss, we know disappointments, we know excitement, we know achievement. All of these things happen to us in, in, as, as individuals in, in individual ways. And within our family system, especially the ways we were shaped there, there was a reward and punishment system usually around race that influenced your membership in the family. So there were things you, talk, you could talk about and not talk about. And, and um, you know, friends you could invite over or not invite over. I mean, all of that is in the, you know, my family, my, you know, individual kind of construction. And we learn a lot about how to make sure we maintain our position in our families by what we choose to say and don't say. And that's especially true around race. I was in Cabo on the beach, and, you know, they make these little bracelets. Um, people come around and make them, and there was a white guy and his son sitting right at the shore, and the vendor came up, and I got up. I was a few rows behind them and got up to get the, get the bracelet, and they made them right on the spot. And so the, 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 <coughs> the young man, he must have been around... Eight, eight was sitting next to his dad, so he went up to get his bracelet made, and and he says, uh, "I looked at the little boy and I said, what colors are you going to use? These are kind of cool, right?'" And he didn't say anything. He just looked at his dad, and then he looked back at the vendor, and he looked at his dad again, and looked back at the vendor. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And I said, "Okay," and I said, "Well, I'm going to get the green for mine. What what color do you think you're going to get?" He looked. He didn't look at me again. He looked at the vendor. He looked at his dad, and he looked at the vendor. And I said, "Okay." And um, I looked at the dad at this point, and he said to me, "He said, I guess he doesn't like you very much." It's just a couple of years ago, and I said, "I he doesn't know me." And his father just continued looking at the ocean. The son didn't know what to do. He wanted to kind of enjoy the bracelet conversation, but he was, you know, having to deal with his membership with his dad, and sometimes this is how it plays. So we're all good individuals. We're all influenced and shaped by our early parenting, our early traumas, our early... um, programming, and we're also all part of group, racial group identities. We're all part of racial group identities, maybe multiple racial group identities. But some of us know we're part of racial group identities, and some of us don't. So um, to understand uh, this conversation, it's important for me to talk about white folks and people of color and use these gross terms to point out some of the dynamics of how this plays in our relative reality. So it's not to put us in a box, it's actually to help us see in a frame how these things get played out. So if if I were to ask you what's the dominant race as it relates to power here in 
North America, what would you say? What's that? Oh, okay, we're in silence, right. <laughs> I rest my case. I just rest my case. <laughs> right? So I think we know that <laughs> there is a there's a profile, there is a there is a um, constellation around power dynamics that we can see in our social field. And it's important to bring some attention to that around race. And it has a certain shape to it. So there's dominant culture and there's subordinated culture. White folks, in terms of, of, of at this time, this term, turn of the wheel, are part of the dominant culture. And people of color have t- typically been in the subordinated culture in this um, in this context here. I think we can see dominant and subordinated um, dynamics in other parts of the world, but we can readily see how that works here. And that means something. What it means is that there's resources. um, Dominant folks tend to have the resources. People of color tend to kind of fight for the resources. And there's a dynamic of the social presumption of whiteness being superior and the social presumption of people of color being uh, inferior. We, we know these things. Um, and it's important to notice these things. And in the dominant culture of whiteness, this is based on some of the research I've done and the groups that I've worked with, the focus with dominant anything, whether it's white or, or um, male or, uh, you know, blonde or whatever the, the dominant constellation might be, is that that's, a, that's, that's focused primarily on, indiv- on the individual. So at the, at the, at the, at those in dominant positions can readily relate to being good individuals. People in subordinated um, racial groups can readily identify with group identity. And that's a dynamic that's, that, that we can see operating in the system. That's a power dynamic that we can bring some awareness to and begin to recognize the role we might be playing in it. Now, the way to really understand the group um, level as opposed to the individual level is that there are what I refer to as six hindrances to racial harmony that we can train the eye and the heart and the mind to see. You can call these um, habits of harm that are repetitive motion injuries around race and racism. I also refer to them as social aggregates. They're just kind of habits that have become um, kind of normal based on our level of awareness around our own racial identity and our own capacity to claim that. So I'll just talk about a couple of these. One is um, that I see that's a recurring pattern is the good white individual. It's the individual that stays, the white person that stays at the individual level as opposed to understanding they're part of a racial group identity. This is a painful pattern that we can begin to have our heart and mind look at. It's the assumption that we're all the same, we're all good and equal individuals. And it's not that that isn't true, as in ultimate truth. (laughs) In relative reality, it doesn't always play out that way. So oftentimes I've had white people say to me that when I look at you, I don't see color. And it's like, well, I really need for you to see color. (laughs) I don't want you to just see color, but I don't want that not to be seen, right? And what that is, the innocence of that, is that I see you. I see you as an individual. I see you, I see you, right? Namaste, I see you. I get that. But what it also means sometimes, coming from white people, is I'm looking at you as I look at 
other things, which is we're all good individuals. And that's not always um, true for people of color. So it's real important to um, not make that assumption. So a way to really uh, get in the skin of this is seldom, although increasingly, would um, um, have white... Um, uh, would you hear a white person, a, a person of color saying to a white person, when I look at you, I don't see color? You know, we don't hear that, <laughs> that very often. And that means something. It's not a criticism. These are observations we can begin to, to slow down with and recognize and, and really feel into a bit more. So for white people, what I've found and um, you, can, you can check in with yourself to see if this is true. But even though this is starting to change a bit in a number of places that I look, but seldom have white people examined together with each other the collective, historic, pervasive, and often unconscious advantages of being a member of a racial dominant group. White people don't tend to talk to each other about whiteness. That means something. That's missing in the equation. And um, that's part of a hindrance that we, we have to deal with. Another hindrance uh, I refer to as the stars and the constellations. This is a way of seeing. We have different ways of seeing. Different races have different ways of seeing. White people hang out at the individual level usually. People of color hang out at the group level. The group level, it, it's through oppression that groupness gets solidified and people hang together, especially around race. So there's a groupness that happens with people of color and, uh, and an individual thinking mindset often that goes with, with um, white people that are looking from the lens of individual. So when I was, uh, when Michael Brown was killed back in 2014, African-American 18-year-old male um, in Ferguson, Missouri, a group of us in Charlotte got together to talk about that, and we watched the video and watched what happened, and it was very disturbing, right? And um, we went around in a circle and we were asked to talk about what we saw and what we felt. And so there, there were a mixed number of races in the group. And a white man said, I can't believe that, that guy killed that boy like that. It should have never happened. And he was trembling and shaking and, you know, obviously distraught by that. He saw the stars. And when I spoke, I said, you know, I can't believe this happened again that a white person has killed a black young man and, and black person, and this has happened a number of times, and I'm sick of it. And so I'm seeing a pattern, right? Um, I'm seeing color. I'm seeing the Big Dipper. And um, the white person was seeing the same incident, but it didn't have color in it. It was at an individual view. It was an incident that had happened that shouldn't have happened. And what I saw was a whole constellation of harm. And this is one of the ways we miss each other when we're having the conversation because of what we're attuned to seeing. It's not a criticism. These are things we can observe and begin to bring some attention to. So that's the stars and the constellation. How, how, have I, how has our mind and heart been trained to view the complexity of race and how it plays itself out? Another way that you, we see this is, is I have some people say to me, white people usually say to me, all lives matter. All lives matter, stars. Constellation, black lives matter. Constellation, you know... Um, the Me Too movement, <laughs> you know, the, you know the, the constellation is what movements are born out of. And what are movements doing? They're, they're pushing against the dominant power system in our society. So what we tend to do 
uh, when we look at this racial landscape is we villainize usually the individual versus examining the mind and the practices within the institution that condones it. So it wasn't so much that Ralph Northam, the Democratic Virginia governor, had the images, you know, from his um, medical school that he dressed that way with his friends. Uh, it was also the institution that printed and posted the images, you know, there's a whole system that's, that's kind of allowing that, right? It's not so much that we hear so many complaints about Trump as the president, for example, and, and his behavior, especially around race and so many other things. It's also the systems and the Congress and the, the whole constitution, or, or not constitution as in constitution, but the whole constellation of behaviors in that system that holds that together that needs to be examined and dismantled and decolonized. It's not so much that my grandson, who's 24 and in and out of the jail system because of bipolar, it's not, so, it's not that it's that individual thing that he does that is, is, is part of the issue. The bigger issue is that there's a whole industrial prison complex that's counting on that, that kind of behavior not being addressed well. That's the constellation, you see. So Martin Luther King, in the eulogy for the martyred children back in 1973, he says, we must be concerned not merely about who murdered them, but also the systems, the way of life, the philosophy, which produced the murderers. I was in Charlottesville and did some mindful of race training and this was after the, um, you know, the rallies that was there. And I remember the mayor standing up saying, these alt-right people have to get out of our fair city. And I'm saying, but where are they going to go? <laughs> if you're not tending to that. And see, when, when white people are not dealing with other white people on race, people of color have to pick up that slack. And then what we have is a really um, uh, um, invisibly, the, the invisible labor and the burden that gets played in that. Um, there's a certain resentment that builds and separation that is a result of it. So um, we're challenged with seeing how this all works together. So there's six um, hindrances that I talk about, but I only just kind of address two of them because those are, these are all ways we start to diagnose for ourselves what our heartbreak is and our trepidation is around race and racism. And then there are two structures, mindfulness structures, that support us in being with the tension and the uh, kind of disturbance around race that can help us settle and uh, soften into more uh, capacity to be in a position of belonging. And one of those structures, mindfulness structures, uh, is, is mindfulness meditation, what we've actually been doing this week. This is a particular heart surgery that supports us at the individual level because we can sit on the cushion, turn ourselves inward, and really begin to have an intimate relationship with, with um, our uh, feelings when we get activated or when we find ourselves numb around it or confused. I talked about this the other day, this idea of working with perceptions and misperception. We misperceive, then we have thoughts and emotions about it, and then we establish a view. Then we're off and running. My mother told me a joke. She, told a lot, she taught us a lot about race through stories, and she told the story of the two black guys driving down a one-lane road on a curvy mountain, and they pass a police car with two white guys going up the hill, 
and when they when they get close to the police, it's a real narrow road. So when they get close to the to the to the police, the the black guys shout out, "Pigs, pigs!" And of course, the the uh, the the police officers are just like outraged, and you know, you know, it's like, "How dare you!" You know, and they can't turn the car around or anything. But they get a few feet up the road, and a herd of pigs is crossing the road. We don't know anything, you know. It wasn't that long ago in Brooklyn that um, this white woman, 53-year-old white woman, Teresa Klein, went to the Brooklyn deli and called 911 after accusing a 9-year-old black boy of, of grabbing her behind. You remember that? And when they played the video back, what they saw was that his backpack had brushed up against her. But she was accusing him, and he was, he was very upset, didn't know what had happened. And then even once she saw the tape, she couldn't apologize because she felt like the mother of the child had been disrespectful to her. And, you know, black folks have a different relationship with the police. You know, when you call 911, that, you know, so... So these are some of the things we can maybe pause with, sit with. And there's a way you can work with rain around this. You can certainly do what we've been doing this week, looking at the recognize and looking at the allow. You can investigate also the sensations in the body. But there's also a writing inquiry or another reflection I would invite you to do, particularly around race. And it centers around a number of questions. You can ask what's happening, what's most obvious, what's most obvious, how am I relating to what's happening, what racial views or beliefs are fueling the distress that I'm having right in this moment, what impact is my experience having on my heart, body, and mind right now. Am I holding to any identity or view of dominance or subordination? And if so, where is that felt in the body? And my conviction and my fixed view about what I'm perceiving, what's being left out of view, and how, it's what, how is what's happening changing? We can begin to bring some curiosity about that, in addition to asking the distress, of course, asking what's needed. And the second structure that I find really crucial to really deconstructing our conditioning around race and racism is supported through uh, what I call racial affinity groups. That's when we get with folks um, of our same race and um, begin to have an inquiry around our racial and racial conditioning. Um, there's an imbalance in our exchanges around race when we come together to talk about ra- uh, come together as a cross race. And what we usually find is that there's a tremendous amount of heartburn because of the different ways we perceive or the different ways we've, you know. Um, we've learned to see or talk about the issue. So it's helpful when we can um, be with folks on, uh, of our own race so that we can begin to ask some very specific questions. And what we're doing in these racial affinity groups is not meant to separate us. It's meant to really exploit the separation that exists within the relative reality of our uh, social system. Can we use that separation to ask some different kind of questions when we come together, deliberately focused on our racial conditioning? So what we're doing in the racial affinity groups is we're coming together once a month. We're consenting to do a deep dive around our conditioning. Uh, This is not where we work on social issues. This is where we work on our, our conditioning and our own heart and our own connection. This is where we use each other to wake up and hold each other together in tenderness while you, while you have some difficult conversations. 
This is where you're attending to the vulnerability and owning discomfort with each other. Sometimes when we're in mixed race groups, people of color end up doing all that work, and um, it's, it's just an imbalance and um, a weight that's um, it's actually something white people can do for themselves. There's plenty of ways that you can carry that for yourself and learn about whiteness and talk to each other about whiteness. Um, there's also a place where you can look at the root of your racial lineage and what was lost and what was gained and talk about that. So these racial affinity groups are meant to, to help us figure out how to be membered, how to remember and be membered so that we can um, begin to have more authentic conversations. So we're also understanding the beliefs um, we have about other races that create inner distress for us. can talk about that with each other. Can you imagine being in a group with your own race, talking about your racial conditioning? If it scares you, again, that's good. That's, that's some of the ways we wake up. So where is this all leaning? You know, we, we, we've diagnosed the problem by looking at the ways we've been conditioned to think about race and racism, the ways we've been conditioned to separate, to not go there, to exercise the privilege of not looking, not attending. Um, and so we have ways to maybe look at how we might do that, if there's structures that we need to support that. Um, I think we need each other to wake up around these issues, and that's what this is uh, intending. But where we're headed is really in a direction of a culture of care. So it's, it's not like these affinity groups stay separate. They're, they're intended to help us come together in a more holy way, if you will, with a lot more integrity and rootedness. So Bodhisattva Tony Morrison <laughs> says that the function of freedom is to free somebody else. And I think there's something to be said about our work in this very tender and delicate territory that's supporting a sense of freedom and connection that serves us in being able to slice through or interrupt the habits we see in the social realm to vote differently, to, to look and, and take a double look when we might quickly uh, walk away from something or to check our perceptions out. Um, that's really what we're trying to do with this. And it really is, is about a culture of care, uh, ultimately, that we're wanting to contribute to through a pure heart and a, and a wiser consciousness around race and racism and our role in it. Because it's easy to see it out there, but I'm inviting an internal investigation. So there's some real structure that I provide around how to create these racial affinity groups with consent and uh, focus and the questions to, to answer and be together and the process to follow, to stay close and, and to Stay close at heart while you're doing this. We see bodhisattvas everywhere, and I'm, I'm just reminded of Elijah Eugene Cummings, who's just right here in this community, right, that we lost just a couple of, what is it, just a couple of weeks ago. And, and um, I mean, this is a contemporary bodhisattva, right, and all of his grace and... Um, born and raised right here in Baltimore. It's so um, one of the things I really picked up on when um, I was glued to watching his services was this poem that I believe he, it wasn't a poem, but something he said that had really caught on for everyone. He said, I only have a minute, 60 seconds in it, forced upon me, I did not choose it but I know that I must use it, give account if I abuse it, 
suffer if I lose it. Only a tiny little minute, eternity is in it. And I just see that as a way that um, if we're walking consciously with the heart of a bodhisattva, which is really concerned with a, a tenderness around our interdependence, that we do belong to each other, that we're, 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 we, we've all, at, at some point in this cycle, we've been somebody's mother, brother, father, sister, uncle, child. And, and we, we, we belong to each other in that sense, that in the sense that consciousness is, is reborn. And what's unfinished is reborn. The Bodhisattva comes in with an understanding that this kind of cycling is, is, uh, has to do with our consciousness and how we, what we're planting. And we're planting whether we're aware of it or not. So how do we wake up around this so that some different blooms will come up? So, um, I just want to close with a couple of more comments. Um, what I've found to be true in my own journey with race and racism, and it continues, you know, in this, um, as crazy as these times are in the world right now, in this 71-year-old body, it's still not as bad as I've seen it, right? So there is this way that is wacky as it looks where <laughs> there is change um, that's happening. I was talking to 7A the other day, and, and um, uh, we were talking about race, and we were all sitting around, and, and it was like, well, you know, sometimes I feel di real discouraged, and... She says, oh, no, this is going to change. And there was just this real conviction and <laughs> piercing truth. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and it was like, it was really, it really felt wonderful to, to just, you know, have her um, with that clarity and that hope. And, um, you know, and, uh, you know, my daughter, you know, it's kind of like that, that this is, this is, this, that, that's another view that fortifies and strengthens and supports um, and inspires us when we're all um, holding hope and not so much despair. And I think this practice, for me, has given me a lot of hope. So the heart must be intimately involved in looking at matters of race and racism. Intimately involved. I think... The heart has always been my symbol of trying to wake up heartbreak, heart openings, heart surgery, you know, heart. Did I say heartbreak? Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> so here's something that Terry Tempest Williams wrote. He says, um, conversationalist and activist, he says, the human heart is the first home of democracy. It is where we embrace our questions. Can we be equitable? Can we be generous? Can we listen with our whole being, not just our minds, and offer our attention rather than our opinions? And do we have enough resolve in our hearts to act courageously, relentlessly, without giving up, ever trusting our fellow citizens to join with us and our determined pursuit of a living democracy. So let's just sit for a minute here together. like to close by with quoting Tara, our beloved, and just reminding us again that whatever we practice gets stronger. May it be wise.
Thank you for your attention. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.